The most ghastly of greetings to every single one of you. As always, thank you so much for stopping by and making Paranormal Prowlers Podcast part of your day. Those tunes you just heard are courtesy of the awesome Bobby Mackey, and I am your host, Tessa Morrow. Today we find ourselves in Chile's Atacama Desert. Geographically, this is the driest region on planet Earth, so I hope you brought a good moisturizer. Now I'm going to be discussing two different ghost towns located here in Atacama, La Noria, founded in 1826, and Humberstone, founded in 1872. Both were created with the purpose of saltpeter mines when it was discovered to be in the Atacama Desert. And suddenly several mining towns start sprouting about like weeds out of dirt, like suds on the side of a mug, including La Noria and Humberstone. Nicknamed White Gold, the main export of Chile, and it was in high demand during the late 1800s and into the early 1900s. Actually, northern Chile had been the largest supplier of saltpeter in the world. While there are many uses for saltpeter, the major ones were fertilizer, rocket propellants, firework, and it was even used for tree stump removal. So there you go. Other uses were aluminum cleaner, toothpaste for people who suffer from sensitive teeth. They even had a toothpaste to relieve asthma symptoms. How have I never heard of this? Since I have shitty respiratory issues, I will definitely look into seeing if something like this still exists. That would be phenomenal. (laughs) In the Philippines, saltpeter is used to induce the flowering of their mango trees. During the Revolutionary War, Several caves mined saltpeter. John Adams' wife, Abigail, even made gunpowder at her family's farm in Massachusetts. And during the American Civil War, British India proves to be the main service for saltpeter, manufacturing gunpowder for the Union armies. Now, La Noria was one of the very first towns to be founded for the saltpeter industry making it one of the oldest towns of the saltpeter boom. Sadly, the deposits are majorly reduced when in 1901 a horrendous fire takes place. But what would be the ultimate death of La Noria and several other mining towns is when a synthetic alternative is discovered in Germany. La Noria was the first town, but it wouldn't be the last. Once saltpeter proved to be an important product, Other towns obviously started popping up, and that's when it gets kind of rough. Now that they weren't the sole providers and had major competition, things began to dwindle a bit, but they held on as long as they could. Working at the mines, it definitely wasn't a whistle-while-you-work situation. Yeah, working conditions were borderline slavery. Many men would move their families to the town, but instead of just the men working in these mines, the whole family, including young children, were sent to work. Apparently, when workers died, they were basically just kind of thrown into shallow graves and with the exception of their families, basically completely and utterly forgotten about. Most of the graves at La Noria Cemetery 
were shallow open graves, making the deceased extremely vulnerable to the weather elements, the animals, and the worst of the worst, grave robbers. Now, if you go to this ghost town, which is no easy feat, and visit the cemetery, due to the open grave policy, you will find the ground littered with bones, remains lying in their caskets, and so on. So if you have a weak stomach, don't go. Seriously. Visiting La Noria is no easy feat. There are several roads that lead there, but I see that they're blocked from the public by mining companies as there are still active mines, I believe, going on. Many find a way and will park their cars and walk. And on the off chance someone is listening to this and planning to go or lives in Chile, be sure to bring a damn good pair of walking shoes and a healthy supply of water. As remember, driest place on earth, folks. While some may be interested in going here, many locals from nearby towns like Iquique outright refuse to step foot here, especially when night falls. Some have even shared that while making their way to La Noria, that locals will try to persuade them to turn around. It's not some local protective thing like, This is our land, get out of here. No, it's that they are concerned for the traveler's well-being. So do with that what you will. But legend is that when night falls, the dead rise from their graves and wander over to Lanoria, a nearby Humberstone. People have claimed to have seen this happen. Just, you know, full-bodied apparitions just kind of roaming about and leaving the cemetery and making their way to town. So many Aikike locals believe the open graves weren't an intentional thing, but that zombies dug their way out and continue to do so every single night. There are several reports on people seeing full-bodied apparitions and also shadow figures roaming the streets, hearing disembodied voices, hearing footsteps approaching when nobody else is around, and just so much more. The schools, they may have closed and long since been abandoned, but that doesn't stop people from seeing apparitions of children at the schools. Some have seen their little faces peeking out the windows curiously. The show A Destination Truth shows Josh Gates and his crew capturing what appeared to be an apparition on a thermal imager. It looked to be that of a small child who looks around the corner and then just boom, suddenly vanishes. And in 2003, a six-inch human-like skeleton was found at La Noria Cemetery. It was dubbed with the name Atacama Alien. But DNA tests proved that it was not an alien at all, but indeed a human being. This baby suffered from the most severe case of dwarfism. Now we make our way to the ghost town of Humberstone. Founded in 1872 by James Thomas Humberstone, and miners build 200 plants to mine and process, and during its booming time, over 3,000 people lived and worked here. And just like La Noria, it was no picnic working here, and children were often seen working their asses off. A mine, no place for children. Apparently, they did not get the memo. Miners were forced to work in the scorching heat for several hours at a time with no break whatsoever, and little water, a necessity out here, was offered, if any at all. 
It was abandoned in 1960, 10 years after in 1970, it was declared a national monument by the Chile government. And in 2005, not too terribly long ago, it is declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Now, unlike La Noria, it's actually pretty easy to get to Humberstone, a 45-minute drive from Iquique, and it's people-friendly for a few bucks. You can actually spend the day and explore the ghost mining town with no problems at all, no issues at all. And like La Noria, it's said that the living challenged Rome, the streets of Humberstone. People who have visited here claim to hear unexplained sounds like whispers, loud bangs, knocking sounds, and doors opening and closing on their own. Full-bodied apparitions and shadow masses, they're also seen around here. Now, two extremely active locations at Humberstone are the theater and the school. Now, at the school, like La Noria, many people have seen children looking out the windows or sitting in the desks. The sounds of children running, laughing, and playing can also be heard. Their small, tiny apparitions are seen roaming about. Like Josh Gates, many have experienced seeing a child look around the corner and then just vanish. The theater is a spot where many sightings of shadow figures are seen dashing throughout the building. Some think it can possibly be a spirit of a past actor who would perform here. And while this next and final location is not abandoned, it does have a bloody history that is forever connected to the saltpeter industry that is worth mentioning, and that is the Aikike School Massacre. Thousands of miners, along with their families, travel all throughout Chile to come and gather to this location, specifically at the Domingo Santa Maria School, where they arrive on December 16th and where they stay for over a week. They are sick and tired of working so hard for so little. They know they are being treated like slaves and the working conditions are a disgusting, insulting disgrace to them and their families. They are asking for 18 pence. Their fellow miners are dying, their own flesh and blood, their young children forced into mine labor and dying premature horrific deaths. This is known as the 18 pence strike and will unfortunately become known as the bloodiest massacre in Chile history. Like so many mines in the world, it caught the attention of so many foreigners as well, including miners from Bolivia, Argentina, and Peru. It said that over 18,000 people were here at this school for this strike. Besides 18 pence, the workers also had a list of demands, which kind of included things like general covering for all or cooking vats and to pay 5,000 to 10,000 pesos for each worker who is injured while on the job. They also wanted free of charge night school for those who are interested, which would kind of make sense seeing that the children were working during the day in mines when they should have been in school. Like, you know, who can blame them? For the most part, Reading this, most of these were about safety measures, which who could blame them? December 20th, 1907, striker representatives conduct a meeting. During the meeting, a group of workers with their families in tow try to leave. 
Troops blocked the exit and they opened fire. Six people die and several others are wounded. But the worst is yet to come. The funerals for those killed are conducted the following day. The others are demanded to leave or you will be met with the same fate as the six who were killed. General Roberts Silva Renard tells the striker leaders to stand down. Basically, not only will your needs and demands not be met, but if you don't leave, you will lose everything. Your family, your lives, you will leave in body bags. At 2.30, the miners are told that they have one hour to vacate the premises and stop this ridiculous act. Enough is enough. Get back to work. Go. The clock is running out. And at 3.30, one hour, it's apparent that no one, with the exception of one small group who did leave on their own, no one's going anywhere. General Renard orders his troops to shoot. The troops are armed and more than ready. Finger on trigger. They are at Manuel Mont Plaza, where they shoot the leaders who are on the roof. This will be the first deaths that bloody day. They then proceed to storm into the school. Many pay with their lives, men, women, and children. No one is safe. They don't care who you are, or how old you are, or what sex you are. You're here. You're trespassing. You shouldn't be here. You're done. You're out. Several are injured, and those who do survive the massacre are sent back to the mines and forced back to work in even more harsher conditions, if that's possible to believe. You know, they were definitely punished for their part in this strike. The official report says that 140 people died and that 200 were injured. But it's believed that the numbers are much, much higher, like in the thousands higher. Don't get me wrong, 140 people? Holy shit, that is 140 people too many who died. But it's believed to be a lot higher, like a lot. The General Renard, who gave orders for the massacre, was promoted after the massacre, and he moves his way on up to the ranks to Brigadier General. Life isn't all that great, as he is severely injured during an assassination attempt from Spanish anarchist Antonio Ramon. Death is not instantaneous, and he dies a few years later due to those injuries. Antonio Ramon definitely had a motive for his actions towards Renard. He wasn't just some madman out looking for victims. His brother, Manuel, was one of the massacre victims. When the massacre was happening, Ramon was in Argentina. He finds out about his brother's untimely death and the deaths of many, many others, and he goes to Chile to conduct his own investigation and find out exactly what happened. Why did this happen? Why is his brother dead? He brings with him a dagger and strychnine. He will avenge his brother. Seven years goes by. Hate is in his heart. The need to take out the man who murdered his, his flesh and blood runs wildly and vigorously throughout his veins. At last, Ramon, he finds Renard, and he's ready. Armed with his dagger, he stabs him several times in the back and the head. He is captured, and Ramon, he tries to kill himself by taking the strychnine, but he throws most of it up. He takes sole responsibility for the attack on Renard. Word gets out about the incident, and the workers of the mines hold public campaigns to release Ramon. Not only did they see him as a voice for his departed brother, 
but also for the other minors, dead and alive. He is sentenced five years. He is released in 1919 and never heard from again. Renard, he does survive the assassination attempt, but he loses all movement on half of his massacre-loving face. He also goes blind and is invalid for the rest of his life. So remember, if you go to visit Lanoria or Humberstone and watch someone walking past, look twice as it might not be a fellow tourist, but a zombie or a full-bodied apparition of a past resident roaming about. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Yes! Listen to the others. They are all pretty awesome. Haven't heard every single one yet. No need to cry. Seriously. Just head on over to any of those awesome podcast platforms such as Amazon Music Podcast, TuneIn Radio, Downcast, PodBay, SpeakHub, wherever you may roam to listen to your other spook-filled podcasts, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcast lurking in the background. This week's special city shoutouts go to Eastbourne, England, Goldenrod, Florida, Niagara Falls, New York, Rockwall, Texas, and Nagpur, India. It's greatly appreciated, every single one of you. Have an idea for a podcast episode, want to be a voiceover for a future episode, or have a spooky tale to share of your very own? Reach out via the Paranormal Prowlers podcast Facebook page, or Twitter at Paraprowl, or email me at paraprowl at gmail.com, and we will see you next week.